Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Here we go, Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm Thursday afternoon, final day of SEC Media Days. And when I say final day, I mean, I'm looking around, and it's really the final day. We're down to about, oh, maybe 20% of the stations that were here when uh, when this thing began on uh, Monday morning. A lot of folks have uh, split. All of the activities are over. You had Auburn, Vanderbilt, and Kentucky here on the uh, the final day. And I think Gus Malzahn thought he was the last one out the door. He, he did a bunch of... Radio hits and uh, limited all of them to three minutes each. So, some tumbleweed just went through here. Tumbleweed. It does kind of feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, what's up, guys? Uh, Sports talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, they can help. They have been financing land for over 100 years. So, if you're looking to build a dream home in the country, they can help. Looking for a piece of recreational property where you can fish or hunt or just kind of get away? Yep, that can uh, that's right there on their radar as well. And if you're a farmer with equipment needs or looking to buy a new piece of property or refinance an existing loan or uh, maybe even get a production loan and you're in North Mississippi, give them a call. Stop by a branch office near you. You can find those online at mslandbank.com where they know the lay of the land. Borky, how uh, how late were you able to stay up last night slash get up early this morning to watch golf? So I stayed up and saw the first tee in probably about four of Darren Clark's holes. Okay. And then I fell what asleep. What did he end up shooting? I don't even know. I have no idea. I like Darren Clark. Seems like a decent enough dude. Yeah, I didn't make it all the way to the opening shot of the tournament. Like, I was close. Like, really, really close. And I was fighting it. And then I fell asleep. So, so I watched. Uh, I watched uh, Darren Clark hit shots on the range. He burned one, slammed a diet coke, burned another one, hit a couple of wedge shots, burned another one, and then headed over for the uh, the first uh, tee box. And I think that's about when I fell asleep. So, he dresses uh, like his millennial kids shame him into looking like less of a dad. Dude, he shot an he shot an even par seventy one. <laughs> I mean, he's got that that weird like Macklemore haircut going on, and he's wearing skinny jeans or whatever you want to call it. He's like eh, midlife crisis, Darren Clark, right now. Not well, maybe, or maybe he's just a cool dude that's got the money to live exactly the way he wants to live. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, I don't even know what his spot, what all of his sponsors are. But on the chest of his shirt, he's got the Abaco Club Bahamas, and then on the, he's got the Audemars Puget watch company logo on uh, on one sleeve. What was that word again? Audemars Puget. Nice. He was the he was the one that won the Open in in eleven, and pretty much just admitted he was drunk for the next week. Right. Yeah. He's he is a partier, 
and was really excited to have the uh, tournament there in Northern We Island. need to figure out how to secure a Bahamas Resort sponsorship. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm not against that. I, I'm not at all against that. Borky, have you got any leads? Or do you want me to work on that if I happen to get invited back to Battle for Atlantis? Just make sure that it's all-inclusive. Because when I say it's all-inclusive, it is all-inclusive. I mean, I could call my resort uh, that we went to in Jamaica, but they have some special offerings that I don't know that the people in Mississippi would appreciate. Yeah. No, I understand that. Uh, Atlantis is decidedly not all-inclusive. I don't know, then. (laughs) Okay, then you can stay home, and we'll go do a show there. Oh, I guess. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, Darren Clark, with his 71 in the opening round of the Open Championship, was uh, it was even par. That was uh, nine shots better than four-time major champion Rory McIlroy. Rippy, you think Roy McIlroy would have had a better day? Um, no, because he shot 83. How did he shoot 83? Left a putt hanging on the lip for 82. There you go. I don't think he's uh, going to shoot the course record tomorrow and get back into this thing, though. Well, he he owns the course record. Yeah. You can break your own record. You don't think he can just transpose his old record? I do not think so. I do not think that will be the case tomorrow. You can, the old cliche, you can't win it on Thursday, but you can lose it. He lost it. Aren't records made to be broken? Something like that. Yeah. Um, it feels like there's a lot of ground to make up. Looks like plus two is going to be the cut line. And when you are sitting at plus nine, that means you got to go really low on day two. If it's two today, though, I don't know what the conditions are like tomorrow, but can you get to four? Yeah, it could. Could potentially get to four. So uh, are you pulling for Rory, or do you want to see him go down in a flaming pile of steam? I like Rory. I'm not, like, dying for him to win it, but I like him. Yeah. He's fine. But at this point, if he's not, I mean, if he's not on the leaderboard, what difference does it make then, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, from a watching golf standpoint, it's basically who's on the first two pages of the leaderboard, but really the first page of the leaderboard and Tiger. Pretty much. Who? But if you want to watch Tiger at the Open Championship, you're probably going to have to do it tomorrow. I just had that idea. We could watch him on my golf channel. I could watch he and Rory because they're bringing up the rear. Would you take the guys that don't make the cut and continue to have them play and televise that? No, because there are guys every day on tour that struggle, even if they're, like, remotely in contention or not. Like, you're going to have a 78, 79 every day. I got you. Uh, that's probably enough golf talk, at least for a, uh, a little while. I'll take a look, full look at the leaderboard a little bit later this uh, this afternoon. Auburn here today, Vanderbilt hit it here today, Kentucky here today. And if I told you, if I said, guess which of those three – made the least waves, the least noise, or you were least likely to know they were actually here, what would your answer be? Vanderbilt. I completely disagree with that. Okay. I have not seen one ounce of Kentucky anything. No media coverage from Kentucky. I have not seen any Kentucky players come through. I have not seen them come through. I ate lunch with a Kentucky reporter. Oh, okay. So there's one. There's one, presumably more. You think? He I saw Lynn Bowden come through here. Okay. Well, good. So, and I saw some some of their fans in the all uh, I know is Derek Mason's the now like, dismantled petting zoo area. Like two and a half. Yeah, they did have. There was like a cash for Heisman and a yeah. Bowden. Cash Daniel. Yeah, he came through here too as well. Okay. I saw him. Yeah, I, they don't even have well, that. Yeah, the players anymore. went there, but I think his point is nobody cares that the players were there. 
Well, same goes for Vanderbilt, though, too. They've yeah, got a good running really, back, and, you know, like, yeah, you know, splitting hairs, but Vanderbilt brought I'm, some guys that should be good. I'm just telling you, Derek Mason has made an impression on me. Yeah. I like that guy. Year in, year out, that guy comes in and he spends two and a half hours on Radio Row the day before. Yeah. Just wandering up and down and up and down and anybody Whoa. want to talk. When you're Vanderbilt, that's probably a smart thing to do. I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. A little, little, little positive coverage for the program never hurt anybody. I don't think he loved the question that he got uh, in the big room today. Um, somebody was asking about Georgia for the opener, and he's like, uh, how excited are uh, Vanderbilt fans for the opener for a new season, and uh, what are you going to do to keep Georgia from taking over your stadium? Because I know a bunch of Georgia fans are planning on coming. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, what's your relationship like with Kirby Smart? I mean, that was that wasn't the worst question of the week, but it, 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 it's, it's in the running for top five. I think Will Muschamp would know who asked the worst question. Yeah, that's exactly week. correct. What was that? What did I miss? Some guy said, hey, coach, have you become Clemson's little brother? I, oh. asked, I asked you about that this morning. I, said, I missed it, yeah. Oh, you must not have just caught the right. I said, was that you asking about? Did Muschamp get red in the face? It took he about just, He cut the guy off and said, no, we're not the little brother. And then um, from what I saw, the guy was none too pleased that his question was critiqued on the Internet. Oh, really? Oh, who's the guy? Some some oh. Bama something magazine reporter. Really? If you'll find that that name for me, I would love to look up his Twitter account and, and further insult him. <laughs> the worst of the weekend might be the guy that stood up during Greg Sankey's opening address and asked him what Steve Shaw's job title that, was. That was actually pretty funny. Uh, I, the commissioner was finishing up. He takes questions. He gets a question from Paris, Shawford, and... One from Mike Bianchi and, you know, a couple of other reporters. Then they go right into the middle of the room. He goes, uh, Commissioner, who exactly is Steve Shaw and what does he do? <laughs> That's like a second away from being the Schwarzenegger thing. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Uh, somebody asked Matt Luke if he liked the powder blue helmets. What are you going to say? No, I don't. Not really. Yeah. Not I mean, my you, favorite. You yeah. could say it. You'd be like, yeah, you know, I like the Navy. We're going with a red one this year. Say something like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I just glad we're putting out the big fires. Yeah. Who is Steve? What exactly would you say it is that you do here? <laughs> You're not uh, listening? Uh, basically, Greg Sankey said uh, he'll talk tomorrow. He'll tell you what he does. Yeah. And then he said, he said He's our coordinator of officials and the secretary of the National Football something or other. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so you got Gus Malzahn here today. You've got Derek Mason here today. We're going to let you hear a little bit of what both of those guys had to say. Uh, Gus was asked about job security. Forky, I know that was an incredibly enlightening answer he gave as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that 30 minutes are 30 minutes that I will cherish for the rest of my life. Oh, and then another, like, 25 minutes to – like find something that I could use for the show. I loved every second of it. What did he say about the job security? Basically well, nothing. We'll play it that. for you. But we're going to let you hear that coming up in just a couple of minutes. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online. Supertalk.fm. Glad to be with you, Richard Cross, Michael Borky in the studio. Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippy. Final day of SEC Media Days. Folks are like as quickly like coming out of every break. There are more people that are packing up and hitting the road. It's okay. We're glad to be with you, and it's been a fun week. We appreciate you being along for the ride with us uh, throughout the course of the week. 
Let's jump in and hear from a, uh, a couple of the head coaches that were here today. Gus Malzahn, who is generally speaking not the most entertaining speaking head coach, but uh, sometimes. Why, why are you laughing at that, Haydad? Generally speaking, Brian Haydad is not the thinnest member of his family. <laughs> Stating the obvious. That's the most backhanded of compliments right there. Well, while uh, listening to him today and cutting this up, I made the observation that we have no personalities as head coaches in the SEC anymore. Jimbo Fisher might be the only one that's kind of like entertaining to watch. Mullen has has some personality, I'd say. He'll he'll, he'll throw a barb in there every now and then. Eh. Guess. Eh. I mean, I I, I see where you're – smell what you're stepping in. but Let's, Let's hear from Gus. Um, he was asked about his job security. Coach, you worried about getting fired? You know, I've got a job that expects to win championships, and I expect to win championships. And I knew that when I signed up uh, for that. And the years that we win championships is good. The years we don't, it's hot seat this, hot seat that. And I think out of the six years, four have been the same rodeo. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the job description. And uh, we expect to win championships. I'm very excited about this year. And, you know, you ask how you deal with it. That's just part of being at a place that expects to win championships. Some places, eight eight wins, they celebrate. That's just not part of Auburn. You know, we're expecting to win championships, and we've done that. And, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to have more championships in the future here, too. Uh, the only question is, are those championships in the future going to be with Gus Malzahn as the head coach or with somebody else as the head coach? Are, are you, though? Are you going to have those championships? I don't know. You mean, like, are you specifically? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, listen, everything that Gus said there was, was right. I mean, he, he said what he was supposed to say. Uh, he answered that question the way that he was supposed to say, answer it. He's not right, or excuse me, he's not wrong about the uh, the expectations. Auburn fans expect to win and win at a really big level. And you win eight games, that's not enough, uh, generally speaking, at Auburn. Um, what are what are we missing though? Uh, here's what here's what I was going to say. Gus has been bullish on this particular Auburn team since the end of last season. Mm-hmm. He started talking about next year, the Monday or maybe it was the Tuesday of their press conference before the game against Liberty. I remember that vividly because I did that game on television against Liberty. And that was part of the storyline was that he had rolled it out there, you know, next year going to be healthy, got a great group of wide receivers coming back, Cam Martin back in the backfield, blah, 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 blah. Defense going to be really good. You know, excited about the future at quarterback, and I think he even knew at that point that Malik Willis wasn't going to be part of it. So he started advertising 2019 with two games plus a bowl game to play in 2018. He beat Liberty, lost to Alabama, just absolutely crushed Purdue in the bowl game. A little bit of a better taste in the mouth going into the off offseason, but he started building up toward 2019, and he's continuing to do that going into this season, it almost feels like Gus knows that if they're really good this year, he's going to be good for a while from a from a job security standpoint. And if they're not good, then it's probably game over anyway. Is it possible that just what he's seeing in practice out of Joey Gatewood, maybe he thinks, hey, I've got an elite quarterback here and 
Nobody knows it yet. I don't think Joey Gatewood's going to be the starter. You don't think? No, he's going to be Bo Nix. Okay. Well, then maybe the same thing there then. Yeah. What a name. What? Joey Gatewood. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. You feel like you ought to be at Stanford? I don't know. I feel like you should be pitching for Vanderbilt. <laughs> Isn't the common small, denominator? Rocker, I bet. Go ahead, Borky. Isn't the common denominator the quarterback? I mean, and everybody is the same way. How many programs in the country can win without great quarterback play, save Alabama? Not many. But when he had Nick Marshall, the perfect quarterback for his system, the absolute perfect quarterback for his system, they won. So hasn't it been just a long search for that guy? And, and as you mentioned, Bo Nix also, at least on paper, and we'll see what happens when the lights come on, perfectly fits that system. Cam Newton was pretty good for that system, too. Well, yes. I think Cam Newton would be pretty good for all systems. But last year they couldn't run the ball. Yeah. Well, but that was largely because they didn't have a quarterback that Stidham, be, became the extra guy. But Stidham worked out fine the year before. For the most part. They were but that word, the well, the year before, last year they lost four uh, starters off the offensive line from the previous years. But, well, but, but hold on a second. The the whole win away from the playoff thing, that was what wins against Georgia and somebody down the stretch, right? Alabama. Right. If they, if they had won, right. they, they won beat the West. Georgia and they beat Alabama, and then they got beat by Georgia in the SEC championship game. Yeah. Pretty handily, right? It was Yeah. But if they had won that game, they were going to the playoff. Even with two losses. No, I, I don't disagree with you, but it was like kind of lightning in a bottle for two weeks, and then they just got absolutely dismantled Yeah, they, in their next two games. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, and then that carried forward. But, no, you're right. I mean, and Stidham was a much better passer two seasons ago than he was a year ago. So it wasn't just that they couldn't run. He couldn't hit the broadside of a barn for a big part of the season. So that's Gus on job security. Gus also going back to a place that he's extremely familiar and has been successful, and that is as the primary play caller. Yeah, when I decided to go back and call plays, and, and you know, that's really, that's, uh, you know, who I am. I'm an offensive guy. That's what got me to where I'm at. Three years ago, you get advice and all that, and, of course, I made a mistake. And, um, you know, when, when Chip left, which Chip is an outstanding football coach, and he's going to do great at Troy, but when he left, it's just the reality, like, what now? And just decided to get back to being me and calling plays. And it's been a very refreshing thing. Uh, I know the bowl game, we played very well, but just, you know, when I'm back in the swing of things, the day in, day out, coaching on the field, what happens is the whole team takes on my personality. It just feels natural. I wasn't real good at standing back and watching. And and when I decided to do that, um, you know, I felt like I need to hire somebody that was good at coaching quarterbacks, that understand a little bit of our system, that was okay with me calling plays. And it's a fascinating dynamic. Um, the, the Chip Lindsay relationship was fractured beyond repair. And, and here's the thing. Gus says, I wasn't very good at standing back and watching. Well, you're right. You weren't because you didn't. You, you didn't stand back and let somebody else do their thing and trust them enough to let them call plays in your system. You constantly meddled, and I just don't think it works. I don't think it works where you have an offensive coordinator who is calling plays, but you're needling and you're messing. Because how can you get into a rhythm? How, how can you really do things the way you want to do them 
and have a good flow when there's somebody coming in every seventh play going, okay, you need to do this here. You need to do this here. Or is constantly looking over your shoulder and micromanaging and scrutinizing every single thing you do. That doesn't work. Chip Lindsey was ready to go. Gus wanted to call the plays, and he needs to be calling plays because he wasn't going to leave well enough alone anyway. Right. Right. That's why, you know, when we talked about Phil Longo the other day, I always believe, you know, the head coach, Moorhead says it, 51% of the vote. It seems like Malzahn had 65, 70% of the vote. It really was going to be the plays that he wanted to call, regardless of what Chip Lindsey wanted. And so you're right. You know, it made sense for him as a coach to just go ahead and, and take control. How about what he said, though? He goes, yeah, three years ago I got some bad advice. I got away from who I was. I, I, I'm the one. It's what I want to be doing. It's what I need to be doing. Chip Lindsey was a great football coach. He's going to be good at all at uh, at Troy. Man, that was bad last year. That's basically what he said. Bad, more or less. Let's yeah. throw Chip Lindsey under the bus. Let's throw whoever gave you the advice under the bus, what? and let's say you're going to get back to where you need to be. How about this? Wasn't he more talking about though the concept of him backing away from play calling more so than the person who was calling the plays? Yes. So it was more the idea of him not calling plays is what bugged him instead of like I, it could it, it could have been anyone in yeah, there. Yeah, could have been guess, one of us point. sitting there, and it, it was just he wanted to get back to calling plays. But I don't know. That's just what I took it as. But well, maybe so. See, I think it's irrelevant because I don't think that talent-wise they're they're going to be effective in the SEC this year. Yeah, you know you you've been down on Auburn, down on Auburn, and I'm not 100 percent sure that uh, I agree that that's the right thing. But we'll wait and see. You know who else Brian Haydad has been down on? The officials. The officials. The other day he said they're just terrible. Well, I had a chance earlier in the week to talk with Steve Shaw. That's right. And I said, are your officials terrible? My co-host wants to know. We'll let you hear what he had to say when we come back. Steve Shaw, coordinator of officials, joins us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. That is next. Back to the sports. This is Sports Talk Mississippi. So let's get rolling. On Super Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi from SEC Media Days. When Greg Sankey spoke on uh, on Monday, one of the big topics for him was officiating in the SEC and a lot of what they've done this offseason to try and improve officiating but also to be transparent. Maybe the best guy to talk about with regard to that topic is Steve Shaw, the coordinator of officials for the SEC. This was our chat with him earlier in the week. I had a chance to visit with a lot of uh, interesting people. I'm not sure about this guy. I, I feel like we should start here and go, um, who is Steve Shaw and what is it that you do? Well, that was the uh, first question in uh, in the big room to Commissioner, and uh, I'm glad he answered. I'm glad he knew who I was. So that, that was good yesterday. It was after um, Commissioner Sankey had actually talked in his kind of State of the League address, a pretty significant amount about officiating and some of the things that have happened in the uh, in the off season. I guess we'll start with: was there a specific play or a specific moment that felt like? okay, we need to do a deep dive on what we're doing, how we're doing it, and really evaluate where we are as a conference, or was it kind of a cumulative thing? Well, 
on one hand, it was cumulative because uh, Commissioner is always pushing us. How do we get better? What do we need from? What do we need as resources to get better? And I do think there were some events last year, probably culminated in the LSU Arkan uh, LSU uh, yeah Texas A&M game where. You know, we had a seven-overtime game, 255 plays. Our crew worked a great job in that game. Uh, a lot of controversial plays and tough plays where could have ended the game, replay came in, overturned a, a couple of things. But they really did a great job there. But if you believe social media, it, it looked like the worst job in the history of SEC football. So I think Commissioner took that as to say, you know, we've got to communicate better. We've got to get out there and not just – sit back and make no comment. So that could have been a fulcrum moment to where we went on that. But he actually came and met with the officials in December uh, and then again in the spring to say, hey, what do we need to do to get better? And, and on top of that, we had you know the Deloitte consulting engagement to really look at our program end to end. What are we doing right? What do we need to do better? What are opportunities? And, uh, and, and so I think it's really a quest to continue to say, how do we get better as opposed to say, uh-oh, the house is on fire. we got to bring a consultant in and change everything. Can you try to describe for me, and I guess I'm taking you back to the days where you were on the field as opposed to overseeing the officials, how difficult it is to do this job, to do it well, and to do it at a high level? Well, from a field perspective, um, we, we all talk about, you know, back in the day, how tough it was, but it has never been tougher than right now because expectations are so high, you know, SEC network and every game is on TV. And on top of that, with all the social media and the technology and the DVRs and the cell phones and the blogs and everything, the, the scrutiny our guys are under is is unmatched in, in the history of officiating. And it's not just SEC and college football. I mean, it's across the board. Officiating has become, you know, a topic now. I mean, every network's hiring experts to comment on and critique officiating. So it's really emerged as something that, you know, back in the day we were kind of unknown subjects working games and, you know, you may get booed there, but then it was kind of, you know, you moved on. Whereas now everybody has a social voice and it's proliferated out there. So I don't think the job has ever been more difficult than it is today. The game is a difficult game to officiate because of the speed, because of all the components. But our guys do a really good job. It is just... The world has changed a lot in their not only expectations but the technology and follow through. So it's made it a very difficult, a difficult job. So we were we were talking some about this yesterday, and and two of us said it feels like by and large the SEC officials do a good job. And one of my co-hosts, I won't throw him under the bus completely, but he goes, "Oh, they're terrible." He said, "I, I watch it every week, and there's a blown call every week." How do you respond when you hear something like that? Because I don't think most people believe that, but there are some who believe that wholeheartedly. Well, when we've dealt with uh, these consultants, and, and in addition to our normal you know, work in, in the off-season, our evaluation officials, clinics and camps and everything, we spend a lot of time with consultants, not only Deloitte, but a communications firm. And, and one of the things that uh, stuck with me that they said was, you know, in the tribal world in which we live, you're just not going to change minds, okay? 
and 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 there's probably a lot of truth to that. Uh, but you know, the the reality of our world today. I mean, I take my job. When when I was first hired, I thought my job was, you know, selecting, training, and evaluating officials, putting them in the right spot, putting them in the right game at the right time to get it right. And that has totally, totally changed. I still have to do all that, but there is a communications expectation, a you know, social media expectation, and everybody has an opinion. And so, our officials. Back to your original question. Our officials are very good. Um, we have not worked a perfect game yet. So, is there an incorrect call every week? Unfortunately, I have to say, yes, there is. But I would tell you, if you put us on par with our peer conferences, uh, we come out very, very well. And in a situation, I would say probably the Big Ten officials and SEC officials face kind of the same thing. The the, the big the big lens, the, the big magnifying glass each week. And it means so much to all our fans. And that's why we've done some clinics together. I mean, I know it kind of sounds strange. You know, the Big Ten and SEC are bitter rivals. But... Bill Carolla, my counterpart in the Big Ten, he and I are good friends. We've worked together. We've actually have a session with our position referees together. Uh, but it's not about, you know, is this roughing the pass or not. It is more about leadership. How do you manage your crew through difficult situations? How do you how do you work through, you know, a tough situation? How do you communicate? And and so those aspects of officiating are getting more and more important. You know, in the old days. You knew the rules, and you were a good game manager. You could run the game. That's about all you had to do. But now there's so much more uh, and so much more expectations and so much more scrutiny. It makes it very difficult. And and I worry. I mean, this is probably not where you wanted to go, but I worry long term. This is not going to impact me or SEC officiating in the near term. But there's a crisis in officiating. I mean, if you look at high school officials, the average age now of a first-time high school official is in their 40s. The average age of a, a high school official is well beyond that. We're not getting the young guys coming in as we need. And I don't know if that's because of the abuse it appears our guys take or whatever it is. Uh, and, and I try to do commercials on that. I mean, if you played the game, it's a great way to stay involved. It's a team. People don't realize it, but officiating is a team game. I mean, you've got a crew of eight, and it is a team deal. And uh, so there's a lot of things that carry over from that. But long term, you know, I, I worry about where officiating goes because people are not turning to it like they did years ago. Visiting with Steve Shaw, coordinator of officials for the uh, for the SEC. You mentioned a second ago social media. <laughs> Are you sure this new SEC official's Twitter account's a good idea? <laughs> uh, first of all, I am not. And and let's go second is I'm not the Twitter guy. So I'm You not, should be though, don't I, you think? I'm not I'm not gonna be my hands will not be on the keyboard. Now, I will be providing uh, input uh, from an officiating perspective. What's the rule? What's the philosophy? What's the call? And and as I am with our coaches, I, I'm very straightforward and honest. If we have an incorrect call, now we don't have blown calls or horrible calls, but occasionally we have an incorrect call. Um, I, I say it up front and, and to our coaches. And I think you have to do that for credibility. So I think the art of this is going to be when do we respond? How do we respond? How often? I mean, I would love to say we'll, we'll talk about every call but that's just virtually impossible you know there were over 18 18 to 19,000 plays in our games last year so how many of those do you comment on when do you comment when is it 
productive to comment and how do we do it and you can't just only comment on the incorrects because then people will go to write well every time I hear Shaw they're missing another one so I I think there's going to be an art to this and uh, we'll have to learn as we go but what I hope is it it becomes an opportunity for fans to hear and understand why a call was made what the rule is what the philosophy is as opposed to just some you know crazy site where whoever can come up with the most outrageous response you know is the winner Um, but we've got to learn but I think underneath all this is what we've learned is there's a need and there's a want for better communications. Uh, people say transparency, not really sure what you know entitles complete transparency, but I think there's a need here and, uh, and we're committed to walking down this road and see where it leads us. That Twitter ha- uh, handle is at SEC officiating. May want to follow it along. And some of the early tweets have already, uh, well, a little amusing when you look at some of the responses to this and uh, what you can expect to see. That's Steve Shaw, coordinator of officials with the SEC. We've got more of that conversation that will come up when we continue. Sports Talk Mississippi from SEC Media Days in Hoover, Alabama. This is day four, the final day. We are wrapping it up with you. More Steve Shaw on the Farm Bureau phone line, the Farm Bureau guest line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team when we come back. Just a little while left in the 3 o'clock hour with you, Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippey on the final day of SEC Media Days. We are in Hoover, Alabama at the Hyatt Regency. We're visiting with Steve Shaw. Just a little bit left in our conversation with him, and I'll be interested to hear from you on the C Spire text line. 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. And also from you, Michael Borky, about what uh, jumped out at you. What was interesting to you about some of what Steve Shaw had to say? So let's hear the rest of that conversation on the Farm Bureau phone line. Last thing with you, uh, the commissioner talked about targeting and some adjustments to the, the targeting rule. I think there's always going to be a debate about the suspension piece of it and whether it should carry to another game or whether that's a punishment that fits the crime, air, air quotes there. But I was fascinated by what he said about the the idea that if there's a doubt, we want officials to drop a flag. And yet, going along with that, when you went to the review process, you couldn't necessarily correct it if there wasn't indisputable video evidence. And now you're to the point where you've got to have all three pieces in order for that call to stand. Is, is this a good thing? It feels like a good thing. It, it, it really is. And and I think, you know, two things I would say. Number one, the rule takes stand away from the replay official. They have to confirm all aspects of a targeting foul. And if they can't confirm all aspects, they overturn it. And that's really, I think, good for the game. But I don't want to lose the targeting rule and why it's in. I mean, the targeting rule is a player safety rule. And... It has served us well. We're changing player behavior, and that's a good thing. Um, We've got to stay the course. But I think this change will really take some of those marginal situations that probably really weren't targeting, but you just couldn't overturn it. Now, uh, if you can't confirm all aspects, you will overturn it. And I think it was good. Last year we had about 12% of our, our targeting calls that were in the stands. I don't know if that will be 12% more will overturn, but I think 
it's the right thing to do. We only should disqualify a player if you can confirm, you know, he committed a targeting foul. But I think we need to do that without backing away from this rule because it's it's leading our game the right direction. Not to be too specific, but with that criteria in place, would Devin White's ejection have stood or would he have stayed in the game? So forward-looking, here's what I would say. If, if you go back and look at that play from this year's rule perspective, uh, it, you would have to have to confirm three things. Number one, the player being hit, was he a defenseless player? Absolutely. The quarterback was in a defenseless posture, so you check that box. Was there an indicator of targeting? Yes. You see uh, there's an upward thrust. You know, it's not really a full launch, but there's an upward thrust. But then you look at the third part. Is there forcible contact to the head or neck area? There's clearly contact. You can see the helmet pop on the quarterback. But can you confirm it's forcible? And you probably can't. So that would be the tight call that could fall in this year to uh, being an overturn. And I think broadly speaking, not that play, but broadly speaking, the marginal plays, we don't want to disqualify players, but we don't want to lose anything on the reason for the rule and and keeping your head up, see what you hit, and trying to work to take the head out of the game. That's what's good for the game overall, and uh, we've got to stay the course there. Great insight. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Good to be with you. That was Steve Shaw, coordinator of officials for the SEC, and Boy, yeah, I really liked what he said there at the end. Now, we've got to see it also. But he said, we don't want to disqualify players on marginal calls. And they have now put some uh, interpretations, not the right word, but, but what he was talking about where you've got to have all three pieces, defenseless player, launching, and the um, – Oh, goodness, the third piece that he was talking about a second ago with, with whether or not it was head head or neck area. you got to have all three of those in there to disqualify a player, so it feels like they've given themselves a little more stringent guidelines that should result in more players staying in the game. Yeah, and I actually I watched a live stream of his explainer from, from the main room, and it, they had some old plays where – uh, they were showing a, a hit or whatever it may be, and he was explaining whether or not this would be targeting and under this year's rules. And it all sounds good. We'll see it in practice. But and this is not his fault. But the fact that it took us this long to where we decided that we have to confirm targeting in order to kick a guy out of a game is just ridiculous. But that is not something that is that's his fault. Now at least they have a solution. Is there anything else that Steve Shaw said that jumped out at you? Well, the the social media account and the transparency with fans, I, I, I get that they're trying to, I don't know, improve their public perception or whatever, but who you, who you, what are you trying to accomplish by being engaging on Twitter and explaining your calls? You're not going to win. You're not going to win. The, the people are going to be insane, and I can't wait for that because Monday we're going to read some of the safe for radio responses to the SEC uh, officials' Twitter account. It's just, who are you trying to win over? Focus yep. on getting it right on the field. Focus on the coaches. We're going to hate you no matter what, the collective we as fans. <laughs> so don't worry about it. You're never going to change. Ceasefire text line, we need more white hats in college, like in the NFL like Gene Steratore and Ed Hockley that actually explain what the call was and why a call was made. I think a couple of things at play there. One, you've got to have a referee that's extremely confident in their ability to explain it and also has the ability to explain it clearly. 
Sports Talk Mississippi. Four o'clock hour with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm from SEC Media Days. Been here all week. Monday got started with the commissioner and uh, had a few teams here. Tuesday, Ole Miss was one of the four teams. On Wednesday, Mississippi State, one of the four teams. And then uh, wrapping things up today with Kentucky and Vanderbilt and Auburn. So you had Gus Malzahn and Mark Stoops and... Uh, Derek Mason all here with uh, some of their players and uh, wrapped up a pretty good week here in Birmingham. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. You can find them online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. Borky, is there anything that jumps out to you from this week that has been news or has been surprising or has it just been very just kind of moving forward we're one week closer to football uh, kind of moving forward one week closer to football but Nick Saban seemed a little out of character especially with the money quote that we talked about the other day with well my staffers were distracted and that's why we didn't play well at the end of the year that was the first time I ever thought and maybe there's others that I'm not thinking of where I thought that the unflappable Nick Saban is actually kind of flappable now if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I understand what you're saying there. Uh, certainly uh, certainly do. Um, we'll see, though. Uh, you know, betting against Nick Saban the year after they lose in the postseason uh, it, it has been an exercise in futility. We'll see how it uh, turns out Oh, yeah, they've year. still got the best roster on their schedule, so they'll be okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, if they meet Clemson at the end, then it's two teams that have – Got two of the best rosters in the country. Maybe those are the two best rosters in the country. Earlier in the week, got to uh, visit with uh, Commissioner of the SEC, Greg Sankey. We touched on a, a bunch of different topics, including the infamous let's come to the principal's office and visit quote and what happened uh, about that. We talked about sports gambling, uh, some mental health issues, and, uh, and some other things. So uh, normally it would be on the Farm Bureau guest line. Uh, this week it just was in person. Farm Bureau, check out favorites.com and go with the home team. Here's our conversation with SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. Joined uh, by the Commissioner of the SEC, who said last night if he could make media days two weeks, he would. No truth to that, right? No, no, no two-week media days on the horizon? Not at this time, but make your job easier. We'd fill the days with specific conversations. We... You know, we've added some things here and there, but I don't think two weeks is in the in the mix for us. You, you did announce on Monday, and everybody seems to be fascinated with location, back to Atlanta next year and then to Nashville the year after that. Atlanta had a little different feel. I actually talked to some people tied to the Nashville Sports Council and whatever, and they're really excited about it. And I, I'm not saying that it turns into what the NFL draft was, but that's kind of the template that they're looking at. And we uh, are able to think creatively shall we say with this movement and we thought last year was a good experiment we very intentionally because we've been in the Birmingham area since the mid 80s we're going to move after 30 years we needed to pick the right place the right venue and and then see what we could learn and we learned a little bit the college football hall of fame provides us this football field and goalposts and really nice look and feel and then Nashville's 
part of kind of that geographic center, which I think is technically about an hour's north of Birmingham. And it's an accessible city. It reinforces all that we do there with our basketball tournament. We've got you know two universities in state between Tennessee and Vanderbilt and some fan bases there that perhaps we can reach and some others that may travel up there. And I'm pleased to hear, and I've heard from Nashville, that they, they want to think about how we might continue to build, keeping the media you know, front and center, but still trying to build some events that make it a little bit more special. Starting the 150th year of college football, there are lots of people that are celebrating it in different ways. Uh, a couple of things on this. Last night, uh, kind of a debut or premiere of Saturdays in the South History of the SEC here in Birmingham at the Lyric Theater. Uh, really neat event last night, and to have Archie Manning and Herschel Walker and Steve Spurrier on stage together, that's, that's a pretty good group of guys. Yeah, and you can imagine being me being, having this, like, set of conversations with those three and I've gotten to know all of them probably you know Steve obviously because he was coaching in the league when I worked here and then come to know Archie first met him on an elevator at the Sugar Bowl and he knew who I was and I was kind of awestruck and, and Herschel actually at the Rose Bowl when Georgia was down I walked in to say hello to some Georgia folks against Oklahoma and they started rallying so I just stayed and, and it worked well. Uh, but really three special people. You can just hear the appreciation for college football and the stories. And what's fascinating, Richard, is the like intertwining of their lives. They're, they're a little bit different era and different roles, different universities, but it intersected in so many different ways because of the great sport of college football and the Southeastern Conference. I, I don't know why this struck me last night, but I was fascinated at one point Herschel was answering, and it was still Coach Spurrier and Mr. Manning. And there's a there was a lot of mutual respect. Um, I think at one point Laura asked what Coach Spurrier would have done if he had had Archie as a quarterback and Herschel as a running back. And he said not enough footballs to go around. Yeah. He said and then what was funny is he said well there's only one football so you know and then he starts breaking down when he had I don't know Eric Ratton I don't know who was playing quarterback back then it may have been Danny Werfel. And, well, we had that problem there. And then he says, Emmett Smith's the greatest professional running back, right, the greatest running back in NFL history, and Herschel's the greatest running back in college football history. So it was interesting just to hear how they answered questions, provided perspectives, you know. I am still fascinated. You know, Steve had been recruited Ole Miss before Archie. Steve, Which I didn't know that before last night. And, and then Steve recruited Peyton to Florida. Um, and and the story that Archie told about when he's playing for the Saints and going to the Sugar Bowl practice when Georgia and Notre Dame played for the national championship and Eli was about to be born. Olivia was like, I think, eight months and three weeks pregnant with Eli and asked the boys, what do you want to name your brother? And and uh, Cooper said, well, Herschel Walker Manning. So, <laughs> And then Herschel says, well, why don't you name one of the grandkids Herschel Walker Manning? But it, that's a representation of the fun and the stories and that that um, that tapestry of the SEC that, that we get to show through Saturdays in the South starting on September 3rd. Visiting with Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC, you're, you're in a little bit of a unique position in that, that you can be an idea guy and then you can hand your idea off to a pretty capable staff to pull it off. I was fascinated last night when you said, so a couple of years ago, I said, hey, we need to do something. Guys, go do it. And that's what you ended up with. It is. It started in Atlanta. When we moved to Atlanta, we could have just had media days. And I said, we have to do something more. 
I said, I don't know what it is, and I threw a bunch of ideas, none of which are what happened, actually. Um, and so last year, we, we had space in Centennial Olympic Park right across from the College Football Hall of Fame, had about, College Football Hall of Fame had about 5,000 people visit, had Regions Bank involved as a sponsor. And there's no, like, Centennial Olympic Park here at the Winfrey, so that didn't work. And Charlie Hussey um, led a team, Lauren Taylor, um, who's our director of marketing, um, just walked through a lot of ideas, and we had this opportunity. It was different than a, a fan fest, but really, really special to be in the Lyric Theater, to have a couple of hours with three segments of the film, Archie's story, Steve Spurrier's story, Herschel Manning, or <laughs> Steve Spurrier and Herschel Walker's story. I, I got to get that name right after hearing, but they wanted to name Eli. And then the conversation, and uh, really well presented, I thought. Special, special couple hours. Going back to your address to the kind of kick things off, the State of the League address, you, you talked about sports gambling a little bit. The, the transition that you made between sports gambling and mental health w- was an interesting transition to me. Kind of walk us through how you think those two things really tie together. Sports gambling has existed in legal formats in Nevada, and it's spreading, obviously present in Mississippi. And we've always been attentive, or at least for the last decade, we have background checks on officials, our, our athletics programs, and spoken to student-athletes about be aware, be careful, don't do this. Same messaging to our officials. In, in Mississippi, I know that the athletics directors, both at Ole Miss and at Mississippi State, are, are attentive to educating on that, but it's spreading. And, and it seems like, okay, now it's going to be normal behavior. We've got about eight, nine, ten states. I think I just saw this morning that in the state of New York, they took their first legalized sports bets at casinos. And it seems innocuous. Well, well, it's not necessarily innocuous. So some people can manage it and have some fun. But if you go look, look at some research, so go to the United Kingdom in England where they've been betting on soccer for about 15 years and there's some learning experiences there. But our student athletes are talking more about mental health and what I observed is I think there is an intersection between those two issues, particularly for student athletes. I've heard and I've read about states considering proposition bets or event specific betting within the game like is a free throw made or miss, is a field goal made or miss, um, is a pitch, a ball or a strike. Student athletes are saying, well, I've got some mental health needs for support that are different. The pressures are different. The preparation is different. Now add the enculturization of sports gambling, really the gamblification of sports is what I've seen. That was Greg Sankey, SEC Commissioner. We will continue that conversation when we return to SEC Media Days in Hoover. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and you for the rest of the afternoon in the Renaissance Bank studio. A good bit of ground with Greg Sankey, the Commissioner of the SEC. Played part of that conversation for you in the last segment. We will continue it for you right here. This was earlier in the week, visiting with Greg Sankey, SEC Commissioner. If mental health is a growing issue among college student age, student athlete age, 18 to 22, maybe it's a little younger, whatever, is that something that's new or is it something that we're giving greater awareness to? Is it something that has been precipitated or uh, pushed because of social media? Where does that come from that it's a bigger issue now than it has been? 
the research indicates something different is happening around mental health issues. So I'm not a psychology professional. I'm not a mental wellness counselor. I have spent some time trying to, to learn because our student athletes raise this question. So the, the, the line of demarcation, we'll go back five years. And for the preceding decade, when you visit with student athletes, what you would hear about is campus parking. Why do I have to pay for this? Why can't? And why do I have to get my textbooks back at the end of each semester? I don't hear those conversations. What I hear continually and even more intentionally are the stories about the needs for mental health support among teammates and the questions about how do you help support our mental health. Now, I'm in a conference office in Birmingham, Alabama, but you know, I visited with Matt Luke who said, we just add another counselor to our athletics department staff. That's happening on all of our departments, Richard, and I think that's an outcome that there are differences. Now, mental health issues have always been with us. I do think your observation's right. It's being more accepted to have these conversations, but there's a, a faculty member at San Diego State who I, I found through reading a book and then in researching her, she's respected for her research on iGen or Generation Z and the changes, and describes the rise of social media, the ability to almost be in an alternate universe and ignore reality. And I'm not trying to be diagnostic here, but those realities do seem to be having an impact that's raised this issue in a different way and, and creating some deficits. Perhaps some of the, the, the family issues in preparation emotionally for adulthood are different. I, I think they are. And that's where we're being challenged to meet needs where 30 years ago it was, hey, how can we better support academic deficiencies and remediate those needs? We do that very well. We're being asked the same around mental health and mental wellness. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, just a couple of more minutes. Um, a lot of was made in Mississippi of the call to the principal's office. And uh, I think Parrish offered to ask you about that the other day with, with John Cohen and Ross Bjork. Obviously, Ross is no longer at Ole Miss. Um, what in reality can happen? Is there really a need for oversight or a change in the way the football rivalry is played between Ole Miss and Mississippi State? Where, where does that go? What, what's the tangible effect of let's sit down and talk to the two ADs? We had had really a series of eruptions, if you will, around that rivalry. I think rivalries are special. I think intense rivalries are most special, and we want to cherish those and make sure those are, are played in the right sort of manner. Uh, my motivation is we need to be able to get through football games and basketball games and whatever without those conflicts in all of our rivalries. And, and there's a period at the end of that sentence. And, and so because it was so public, um, and it was not, that was an ugly scene at the end of that third quarter for a number of different reasons. We also didn't get all of the, the numbers right. We acknowledged that on, uh, in a press release on Monday. And I respect Ross and John to handle those things internally. I don't feel the need to always suspend and, and want it to be fair given ends of eligibility, whether people would play, and then who might have eligibility remaining. But we just can't walk away from our responsibility, and that's con to conduct the games appropriately. And so we had a very open, honest dialogue in early May. We did so at a, at a meeting in Jacksonville. Uh, John and Ross and I had talked there, and we talked after. Uh, Keith and I have connected, given the transition in Ross's role. And the, the motivation from my end is let's present on Thanksgiving night to a national television audience a special rivalry 
know there's a, a, a lot of backstory there. I, I fully understand that. But let's play a game in a great way and make sure that the two universities in the state of Mississippi are presented in the, in the best possible manner. Are you willing to share what some of their concerns were when they kind of brought to you, hey, these are the issues that we see are in play? No, I appreciate the question. I keep those meeting issues um, confidential. I think that's a respectful way so that we can have honest dialogue and you know, fans can probably go down a list and, on both sides and identify their issues. But, you know, very collegial, very honest, and, and also looking forward to say, how can we help overcome some of these issues in the future? We could go a lot longer. Appreciate your time today and uh, good event this week. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. I'm happy to come back anytime. So To Birmingham? No, to you. To, your show so you know. oh, you're happy to come back well that'll be great we'll, we'll do it uh, yeah soon. you know there's this immediate reaction i've heard by by some who say they're never coming back to to hoover to birmingham i'm like i can see else in atlanta in 20 and nashville in 21 and i have no idea what happens in 22 and i would think if others know that i should probably know so uh, I keep lobbying for New York, and you keep kind of put. You did throw Vegas out. I did, just to see if people were paying attention to the big room. And I saw a few necks snap where they probably need chiropractic uh, service. You know, a long time ago, we had a conversation about New York, and one of our colleague conferences has done that. But the media comes to us, and I think you go to New York, we're the media center when, when you have to go to them. And we're going to keep this thing rolling along so people keep coming to us rather than taking it out of footprint. But I think Atlanta and Nashville are healthy moves, and uh, we'll see. See what the future holds. I'm just looking for an easy way to get to a Yankees game in the middle of the summer. So, well, it's me. I'm with you. I'm a Yankees fan and uh, would appreciate that, but I'll find another reason other than SEC Media Days and, and the Big Apple. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Richard. That was Greg Sankey. He, he uh, Borky, I thought he was inviting us back to uh, back to Birmingham, and instead he was inviting himself back onto our show. Yeah, we'll take him any time. I think. Yeah, I think so. At least generally speaking, don't, don't want to necessarily burn those opportunities up. But uh, good some weekly, what do you think about the officiating segments? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you want to you want to join us uh, Mondays at four thirty? We've got a uh, standing spot for you if you're you're interested. Um, we, we talked some on Monday after his address to the entire group that was here, the, the state of the league dress about that bridge between gambling and mental health. I felt like he went into a little more detail about that topic here, and I think that's real. I, I mean, Borky, I, I don't know if it's necessarily the reason um, that something happens or doesn't happen with regard to um, you know in-game betting, prop betting, with regard to specific things that happen in a game. But that's a, that's a pretty interesting topic of conversation and one that uh, may continue to get some traction. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what they get already. I think it was uh, Jake Bentley that said his best advice to young quarterbacks in the SEC is to hold your finger down on Twitter on your phone and hit that little X that pops up in the corner. Just get rid of it completely. Uh, thought that was a really good quote from him, but I cannot imagine... When, when sports gambling becomes a nationwide thing, and it's on the way to doing so, if we have it in Mississippi and Tennessee, we're going to have it everywhere else soon enough. How much worse it gets? Because well, right now, if you miss a field goal, if you're a Tennessee kicker and you miss a field goal, all the Tennessee fans hate you for a couple weeks. But if you're the Tennessee kicker and you miss a field goal and somebody had hundred grand on Tennessee winning that game, what are they going to do? And how are they going to approach these players who are completely accessible? on multiple different social media platforms. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's something to that. That's, uh, 
It's pretty good advice from uh, Jake Bentley, huh? Yeah, that was. Uh, it's probably good advice for all of us, myself included. Just go ahead and delete Twitter. Your life will be better. But Sankey brings up the call for legislators to do something. He wants, in a perfect world, they want like a federal thing, a federal law somehow mandating or controlling or regulating sports betting. What does that even look like, and what do you well, want them to do? Well, that's actually really fascinating. You are going to hear tomorrow from Bruce Marshall, who, you know, we talk, he's a handicapper based in Vegas. We talk to him on Fridays throughout the football season. But Bruce and I actually get into this a little bit, and Bruce is not just a, a sports guy. He, he's very up on politics and is very fascinated with politics. And he pointed out that, look, when the, when the Supreme Court basically handed the rights back to the states to make their own decisions about sports gambling, they were also kind of punting or, or kicking down the road, kicking the can down the road, any other legislation for oversight. And, and that's going to be the responsibilities of the states. And if you're somebody who is politically conservative, you generally fall on the side of states' rights with issues. And then when you start talking about federal oversight, you're talking about federal government things. But, but I thought it was kind of interesting uh, in that conversation, you'll hear more of it tomorrow, that Bruce thinks that um, federal oversight would probably be a good thing. It's not likely to happen anytime soon. And he thinks that the harbinger for change will be a major scandal that probably will happen somewhere along the way after we introduce legalized sports gambling in all 50 states or 40 states or 30 states, however many choose to uh, take it up. That's coming up tomorrow. A little bit different angle from, uh, from Bruce Marshall. Sports Talk Mississippi, we will continue the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days when we come back with you on this Thursday from Hoover. Mississippi streaming online with you at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross and Michael Borky. Got a bunch of uh, interviews for you the rest of the way this afternoon from uh, some of the folks that we've talked to that we've not had a chance to get to yet this week. So we put uh, we put Rippy and Haydad on the road for Mississippi. You're down to just Borky and me for the rest of the week. I think we can handle it though, right? No, we're stuck with Rippy tomorrow. Oh, that's right. That's right. Rippy's going to be with us tomorrow. Uh, hey, Dad is now on an extended vacation, and uh, Rippy is uh, going on vacation next week as well. Can we say where they're going, or should we not do that? It's probably not their, but not our business to say. Yeah, I don't think they would mind, though. Yeah, maybe we got to hold off. We'll, we'll make Rippy talk about where he's going next week, or get all clammed up and not talk about where he's going next week. Yeah, it's funny how that works with him sometimes, huh? <laughs> it almost makes it better though because you just you know you try to pull and you try to pull and it adds the suspense and once we start down that road i'm not going to quit pulling until i get what i'm <laughs> trying to uh trying to get hey we've been counting you down to the start of the football season we have made it to number 44 it's 100 teams in 100 days this day is bananas b-a-n-a-n-a-s this day is bananas 100 teams in 100 days. Touchdown. Okay, ready? Three, 
teams in 100 days, counting them down. We have made it to number 44, team number 44, the BYU Cougars. That's pretty bad. BYU went 7-6 last year, fourth year for Kalani Sataki as the head coach. It's his fourth season overall as a head coach. Borky, I have for you a trivia question to begin this little exercise today. Are you ready? Let's hear it. Name, not counting UConn, who is soon going to be joining these ranks, name the six independent FBS schools in college football. Uh, okay. Um, Clearly, BYU is one. So I've given you one, and, and UConn Notre Dame. doesn't count. Notre Dame, there you go. The three service academies. Uh, no. Oh, wait, no, Navy's in a conference. Two service academies. No, it's just Army that's not in a conference now, right? Because okay. Air you, Force you, is in the Mountain West. You have finally talked yourself into a right answer. Okay, so we've got Notre Dame, BYU, Army. Okay. New Mexico State. Well done. That's four. There's one that is glaringly Ooh. obvious. I said Notre Dame, right? No, well, I mean, not that obvious. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, maybe I should say glaringly relevant. You're they killing a, me. They have a head coach. <laughs> Liberty. Oh, oh, right. Yes, yes. Liberty. Um, because they played New Mexico State twice. They played New Mexico State twice last year. They will do so again this year. They were on Auburn's schedule. Next year they play... Is it next year or two years they play Ole Miss? I think it's 21. Okay. So that's down the line. So that's five. Uh, Who's six? UMass. The Minutemen. That is correct. Independence has not been... Has not gone swimmingly for them, Mm-mm. but uh, they are in that uh, that group. Uh, let's see, UMass eight four and eight four and eight two and ten three and nine three and nine. That's going reverse order last five years. But we're not talking about UMass today. We're talking about BYU. Uh, question with regard to BYU for the purposes of power five scheduling power five teams. If you're in the SEC. Should BYU count? Should there be a waiver that BYU counts as a Power 5 team? No, not anymore. Maybe ever. I mean, that's one of the big mysteries. When we were talking earlier and we saw that it was BYU today, this thought always hits me when I know or hear about BYU, is how were they ever good? I understand that they were, but considering the amount of restrictions that a student at BYU has on them, how were they ever able to field a football roster that was competitive nationally? I think part of it was because of the coach, right? I mean, Lavelle Edwards was just one of the all-time great coaches, and they were able to recruit, and college football was drastically different in the uh, in the 80s than it is today. Um, but even I mean, still, I mean, you're recruiting kids that you, you cannot consume alcohol. You can't have girlfriends for all intents and purposes. You, you, you basically have to be a Mormon or else it's going to be a culture shock for you. And they still got guys to go and they still won and sent guys to the NFL. And Well, the Mormon church is massive, one. And number two, you are also generally on your football team dealing with guys who are more mature than the, the opponents. 
you know, because of that two-year mission, you know, maybe you play your freshman year and then you go on a mission or maybe you go on a mission and kind of delay admission, admission to the university for a couple of years. And so instead of going in as an 18-year-old freshman, you're going in as a 20-year-old freshman. And then you're a 23-year-old junior or 26-year-old senior or, you know, whatever the – however the math works out. Um, so I don't know. But, I mean, good grief if there have been some good quarterbacks that have been through BYU. Ty Detmer threw for 15,031 yards. Had some guy named Steve Young that played quarterback there as well. Um, he was okay. Yeah, he was, uh, he was pretty okay. Seven and six last year for BYU. They are in Knoxville in week two. So they are at Tennessee for the second week of the season on September 7th. Open on a Thursday night with Utah. A little holy war to start the, uh, start the uh, year. BYU 11-1 in season openers in the last 12 years, and they've won five in a row, but they have lost eight straight holy wars, only one by more than eight points. And you like that Utah team. I love that game. In fact, I've got a buddy who that, that is his favorite rivalry game. Why is that? I don't know, man. I, you know, we, we all like to stay up and watch Pac-10 Pac and then Pac-12 after dark. And, uh, I mean, you just walk up to me like, you love the Holy War. That's the best game on that Thursday night, isn't it? I think it is. I, I think it absolutely is. It's a late so, start for that one, though. Utah, B, what time does it kick? 9.15. Oh, man, that's beautiful. So, on the, on the, the night rolling into the opening weekend of college football, we've got some early games, and then we've got BYU-Utah kicking at 9.15 Central Time. I'm in. Aren't hey, you? That's a pretty good way to start the season. Yeah, it's a good way to start the season. Uh, they play Southern Cal, Washington. Yee. BYU could start this season 0-4. They're going to lose a bunch of games, unfortunately. Good grief, Borky. You look at their schedule. They could lose to Utah, likely use to lo lose to Utah to start the year. Probably lose at Tennessee. Probably lose to Southern Cal. Probably lose to Washington. That's 0-4. Get a win at Toledo. Kind of a toss-up game against USF. Probably lose to Boise State. Should beat Utah. Well, I don't know. Utah State's pretty good. It's a good program. They host Liberty in November. Hugh Freeze team. Then Idaho State, UMass, and San Diego State to close it out. They've got a, BYU's got a heck of a home schedule. Listen to their home games this year. Utah, Southern Cal, Washington, Boise State, Liberty, and Idaho State. And compare that to what Arkansas has for their home oh, schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Whose home schedule would you rather have? Uh, famous alumni from uh, BYU. You got Mitt Romney. It's a good one. We also uh, share a birthday, which makes me special by comparison. Ken Jennings. You know who Ken Jennings is. Oh, do I? Most money or most uh, money and starts ever won on Jeopardy. Oh, hey, that's something. Yeah, he was James Holzhauer before he was James Holzhauer. Uh, Stephen Covey with the Seven Habits of Highly Effective uh, People. Uh, Mike Weir. <laughs> he, he's just the, co the, the topic of conversation that never ends. Jim McMahon, uh, you know, you ask about. I know we shy away from athletes, but you were mentioning earlier that uh, from a recruiting standpoint, you got to get guys that adhere to um, 
Yeah, he didn't. He just kind of went his own route on that. Yeah. My favorite story that I've read about BYU was when Wisconsin played there. There's two bars in Provo, the story said. And the same people go to those bars because there's not many people that go to bars in Provo. Yeah. And so it's usually the, the same crowd all the time. And when Wisconsin went up there, as you can imagine, it, Wisconsin has an SEC like drinking and tailgating reputation. Maybe even Absolutely. stronger. Absolutely. Both of the bars ran out of alcohol before Saturday. Wow. So they had to bring in an extra shipment to you know, keep the Wisconsin fans happy when they were in town. Uh, ceasefire text line, BYU was good because they were grown men. They weren't a bunch of kids. Cross is right, and they will be good again. We'll see if they get back there. Uh, kind of like Kalani Sataki. we got more coming your way this afternoon. Sports Talk Mississippi, that's 100 teams in 100 days. How about a look at the leaderboard and some thoughts on the Open Championship? Then we'll get into the college football fix conversation with Cole Kubelik coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Back after this in the Renaissance Bank studio, Renaissance Bank, understanding you. o'clock hour with you sports talk mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm final day of sec media days and so what should we do we should talk off open championship stayed up late uh, might have missed the opening shots might have woken up sometime around 4 a.m uh, and caught a little bit of it uh, the first round in the books jb holmes in the lead at five under par shane lowry is at four under john rom Made bogey on 18 to fall into a uh, group at three under that includes Tony Finau, Tommy Fleetwood, Ryan Fox, and some others. But for the biggest of big names, it was not a good day in Portrush, Northern Ireland. Uh, Tiger and Rory, two of the favorites, Rippy, at least like favorites in terms of people wanted them to win, not very good. No, but they tried to like force that that Rory storyline on you and I you know they forgot about Shane Lowry he won an Irish Open there you know is very much more like Irish thing like seems like when I think of like Ireland and Irish golf I think of him more than Rory McIlroy like you know do you like the way he talks and his temperament like Rory I don't know I mean I don't mean it's like a good or bad thing like Rory just is I guess I guess he's more of a national brand like this guy never comes over to the United States hardly but you know a guy with a lot of experience on that course J.B. Holmes Kind of out of nowhere. I mean, he's won on tour this year, but didn't he play at Kentucky? JB Holmes. I don't know where JB Holmes played college golf. He's been around the block for a while. I know where a lot of these young players played because I like watching and keeping up with college golf. But I was like seven or eight when he was playing college golf. Your boy Dylan Fratelli is on a golf bender right now. Wins the John Deere last week and uh, comes back, shoots three under the first round after jumping on the charter from uh, what Moline, Illinois to. Northern Ireland? 
Yeah, I imagine getting on a plane that five hours earlier you didn't know you were going to get on is a pretty solid feeling, particularly with like a million four in your pocket and an exemption into the open. So I bet he's really feeling it right now. Honestly, I bet it's an adrenaline thing. I bet, I bet he didn't have to sit in Economy Plus either. No, I bet he did not, and I bet he didn't have anyone giving him the business on each side of the row either. So I'm sure he had. I'm sure he's had a heck of a week. But I think you don't he, think it was a middle seat. No, I don't think he was a middle seat guy after winning that much money. But you know, I don't know. I bet he's on adrenaline. I bet he's going to get to the end of this week and be exhausted. How about Brooks Kepka at three under? Just kind of. I mean, that's like the most Brooks Kepka opening round at a major over the last couple of years ever. After openly admitting he doesn't practice for normal events, so you know, that was wild. He, that's his brand now. He's become infinitely more likable as being the guy that I don't care and I'm better than all of you and I still don't care. Like I used to, when he won that first U.S. Open, I was like, this guy's extremely boring. Like it's hard to market him. And then he's kind of realized that that's like his brand and like I love him now. Like he, he's awesome. He's the guy that doesn't care, has this gigantic chip on his shoulder. I'm not even sure that he's got a chip on his shoulder. I think that's like part of the brand that he's rolled in. So, so what was in the press conference this week? He's like, I only practice before majors. He said, if it's not a major, when you see me on the course, that's the only time I pick up golf clubs. Yeah, he said. I mean, he said on part of my take a couple weeks ago that uh, the Barso podcast said he golf's too long, so he doesn't really remember what happens on holes nine through fifteen because he's so bored. And so like. He'd be like Tom Brady, because like it's not a chip. He just finds irrational. He's so good, he finds to find irrational things to get motivated about. Like Brady, you know, in his 19th year, saying everyone thinks we suck. Of course, that's absurd. He's like Tom Brady. If Tom Brady had to ask people to remind him how many Super Bowl rings he has, because he doesn't care. I've heard people allude to this, but nobody will come out and say it. And I've had somebody tell me that would have a pretty good idea that the money he is getting from Nike now is absolutely obscene to the point that Nike probably was okay with him not winning the U.S. Open. So, you know, he signed the the deal with them a couple of years ago, and it was a, a decent deal. It wasn't Rory money. It wasn't Tiger money. But... There were incentives in there, and and basically the incentives for majors were so massive that, I mean, I don't feel like he's about to break Phil Knight or break Nike, but it's obscene how much money he's getting from swoosh. Well, and I'm sure the deal at the time seemed like a very standard deal for a guy as caliber because he's kind of an example that these – like, it's not all a kid's game. Like, these dudes – some of these guys bloom late. Like, he wasn't a Jordan Spieth or he wasn't a Patrick Cantley that came out and just immediately set the tour on fire or like a Bud Cauley or something like that. It took him a while. And so I'm sure that was an affordable deal for them at the time. Probably not so much now. Hey, you pay him a couple of million bucks out of the gate, and then he hits every incentive available, and now all of a sudden you're having to pay him like $15 million a year. I'm sure that when they gave him the contract, I was writing up, I was like, this guy's not going to win all this. And then now he's the greatest golfer on the planet. <laughs> now he gets $10 million a year to wear Hawaiian hats. Yeah, which y'all are not a fan of. I, I can I can stand for the Hawaiian hat. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, will Rory come back and go low enough tomorrow to make the cut? No. Roy McIlroy did it, but I don't think Rory McIlroy's doing it. What about Tiger? No. You throw up seven or eight over. I mean, it's a classic cliche. You can't win a tournament on a Thursday, but you can lose it. I mean, I don't see these guys falling back. you got a guy already at five under. They may get harder on the weekend, but no, I don't. Eight over is way too much. I absolutely love this tournament. We're going to talk more about it tomorrow on Sports Talk Mississippi. Two hours in the books. We've got the college football fix coming your way next in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you.
Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm. Final day from SEC Media Days at the Hyatt Regency in Hoover, Alabama. Richard Cross, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippey, Michael Borky in the studio. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online, you can find them at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, Mississippi Land Bank can help because it's what they do. They've been financing land and all that goes along with it for over 100 years. So if you are a farmer and you've got equipment needs, time to buy a new tractor, new combine, maybe a new spreader or uh, some sort of a planter, you can do that because you can finance equipment to improve land. Also, if you need a loan to buy a piece of property, to refinance an existing loan, or maybe it's a production loan, Mississippi Land Bank can help with all of those things. MSLandBank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. This is the final day of... SEC Media Days. Cole Kublik is a good friend of ours. Normally he joins us on the Farm Bureau phone line. He is uh, sitting down with us, though, in person to uh, talk some SEC football and uh, always enjoy our chats with Cole. This is the College Football Fix, driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough as part of the Hurry Up and Save sales event. Your chance to save big on the F-150, plus the entire line of cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs from your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Sat down a little while ago with Cole Kubelik. Here's that conversation. He's in Cole Kubelik's backyard. Normally we talk to Cole on the Farm Bureau phone line. Right now, though, he is uh, with us here. You're kind of a star around these parts, aren't you? No, I'm not. What did is you this get? microphone? Is, did you like steal this from uh, like a TV set or something? I went straight to the ESPN trailer and stole it from. No, it's just shotgun mic. It's like directional audio. It's supposed to be good. I don't have to stick it right in your face and you can still hear you. <laughs> I like that. We can just, so they just hear me from here. Yeah. All right, good, cool. Absolutely. No, I'm not a star here. I didn't even come to Media Days as a player, so I'm not very important. You've been to a bunch of them since then, though. A couple, yeah. I, I'm trying to think. 2010 was my first year on radio, so I think that was my first one. So I've been to maybe, I had to skip one or two. I've probably been to eight or nine. You've done far more interviews than maybe you did when you were a player, post-playing career, right? Yes. Um, I mean, I was the guy under Bowden and kind of under Tuberville, too. You know, they always had like their three, four guys that they would say just go down there every year or every Tuesday and talk to the media because they knew they weren't going to say anything stupid. So I was kind of that guy, but I wasn't really one that people wanted to talk to every week. There's always a guy who's who's like the veteran with a little bit of a level head who has to speak after a loss. Was that you? Sometimes, yeah. I, now, after a loss, I wasn't very good. I wasn't the guy you want to talk to because I was usually pretty pissed off. So um, I might say some things that I would regret. Uh, if you ever talk to Kirk Sampson, like when you see him floating through here, ask him the story after his first game as an intern at Auburn, and he'll tell you a funny story about me. I will. Uh, I'll do that, and then maybe I'll try to uh, relay that on the radio. Monster tease there. Cole Kublik, uh, co-host of Three Man Front, does uh, Sirius Mary XM. Told me yesterday. He says, um, "I said if you played a game of Survivor." And you, Kel Garrett, and Tom Hart are dropped on an island. Who's off first and who's off last? And he said, well, Hart's off first because of this story that I heard about a rafting trip with him and some of his buddies that he went to school with. So, And then he finishes up and says, Kel Garrett will probably win. I said, well, i got to go back. What 
tell me about the rafting trip. He's like, oh, no, no, I, I can't go into it unless Hart's in the room. I was like, well, good. He'll be on my show tomorrow. I'll ask him on air. But now, and I had dinner with Tom last night, and he still won't tell me what the rafting trip's all about. So, I don't know. Some of these teases never pay off. Do you think you'll get a rafting trip story from Tom? I think he'll make something up. I think he'll give us some complete BS, whether it's actually what happened or not. And something that probably makes him look really good and sounds better than it actually was. You were nicer than this, more diplomatic than this, but did you think the Ole Miss offense was complete BS last year? Not complete, no. Um, do I think it was irresponsible at times? Yes. Um, irresponsible strikes me as a pretty strong word from a guy that breaks down games all the time when describing an offensive philosophy. Listen, it's, it's easy to, in any walk of life, it's easy to get caught up in your in your dome, in, in your own cocoon. And I think that's kind of what happened in multiple facets of the Ole Miss football team last year. I think it happened on defense, too. And I, I think there was a part of the offense that was wrapped up in just what they could do well and what they wanted to do, as opposed to what would have been best for the team. Certain play calls at certain places on the field, at certain times in the game, to me, just weren't sensical. I'm not saying every play. I'm not saying every series. But there were times when things could have been protected and they weren't, especially if you could see the big picture of what the entire team was. Now, do I blame them for throwing the ball to A.J. Brown 182 times or whatever it was? Absolutely not. No. Do I blame them for throwing fades to D.K. Metcalf when he was in the game? No. But there were just times, whether it was pace and tempo, whether it was down and distance, whether it was throwing the football on a 50-50 when you had a run box, that I thought was a little bit irresponsible. And that's why I think Ole Miss is going to be a better football team this year because now you've got two guys managing both sides of the ball that have recently been head coaches. Two guys that understand, I don't just coach my side of the ball to get tackles for loss or get sacks or to score touchdowns, or to put up 500 yards a game, or 48 points. I coach my side of the ball to win the game. And I think you'll see that pay off a little bit for Ole Miss this year. And that's why I think the team will look very different. Have you gone back and looked at some of Rich Rodriguez's offenses, whether it was Arizona or Michigan or West Virginia, to, to kind of have a really good idea of what this Ole Miss offense is going to look like? I think it's going to be more like some of his earlier Arizona offenses when he had quarterbacks that were better passers and he implemented that part of his game a little bit more. Think, Not Arizona Khalil Tate. No, I don't think so. Um, well, he doesn't have that guy. I mean, I think Matt's a good athlete and I think they're going to use his legs, but is he going to run him 25 times a game? No, I don't think he's going to be that kind of a guy. He's not going to be a Denard Robinson. He's not going to be a Pat White. It's just, first off, I don't know if he could hold up. I mean, you, and you don't want to find out if he can hold up that way. But I think he's a good enough passer to where they can offset that with his arm. And now, keep in mind, the era of Rich Rod that I'm talking about, that was kind of before the RPOs took over offensive football and college football. So I think now with the implementation of some RPO stuff, some more option stuff through the passing game, some different things that you read at the line of scrimmage, I think you'll probably see Matt do more through the air than you will on the ground, but it'll look probably it'll probably mirror more his early Arizona offenses. Does Matt Corral having played in four games last year and, and getting the red shirt carry over, does that make him not a freshman quarterback? Because technically he's a freshman quarterback and Matt Luke will tell you I've got four freshman quarterback 
which generally speaking would be pretty scary. I, I think I would be more along the lines of what you're saying. He's not a freshman. The kid played. He's been in games. He's been on the field. He played in the Egg Bowl. I mean, come on. You, it, what do we say about all these freshmen, whether it's this Nolan Smith kid at Georgia, whether it's um, Bo Nix at Auburn, whether I mean, these incoming guys, DJ Dale at Alabama, I hadn't seen them do it. I hadn't seen you put the uniform on, and I hadn't seen you play in a game. So I can't be overly confident in what you can do and how you can do it because I haven't seen it. Well, I've seen what Matt Corral can do. I saw it in a game live on television. I can go back and watch the film. I've seen it. So I don't view him as a freshman. I understand the age. I get the red shirt rule. That's fine. But he has legit in-game experience. Therefore, I'm not going to give him the excuses or the outs of being a, quote, freshman quarterback. Ole Miss lost some dudes on the offensive line from a year ago, and that was an offensive line that was maybe a little undervalued when you look at what they've got coming back. Alex Gibbons, Ben Brown, those are the two really experienced guys, Royce Newman, and they've got seven incoming players on the offensive line. Is that a recipe for disaster, or is it one of those things where you just hope you can kind of get through it without it being a disaster? Well, I think with what Rich Rod is going to do to create space – and he's going to want to try to eat up yards by creating space. He's not going to have to do that by necessarily getting a push up front. He can do it in different ways. And there's going to be a lot of visual deception. There's going to be a lot of movement. And they're going to try to find defenders out of position to be able to find that space and create yardage. Now, I think you add to when Rich Rod's offense were really good, they did have a downhill run game. And I think Scotty Phillips can help him with that. But the offensive line is not going to be one where they can just push guys around and they can run between the tackles 20, 25 times a game. That's not who they're going to be. But I do agree with your point that it was maybe taken a little for granted last year. I mean, look where Greg Little was drafted. The guy was an elite talent. Um, you know, Sean Rawlings played a ton of football. I mean, that kind of experience is valuable. So uh, Javon Patterson falls in that mix also. Played a ton of football also. So experience up front is critical. It's key. And when you don't have it, it does show up. So – I think they'll go in with the understanding that we're going to have to work around this group for a little while. It's not going to be great right away, but if we can manage it, because I think they still have pretty good skill. I think you have a quarterback now that can do different things and help you out. And with this new scheme offensively, I think they'll be okay. When we come back to SEC Media Days, we will have more of our conversation with Cole Kubelik, who's joining us on the Farm Bureau phone line. That's when we come back in the Renaissance Bank studio. Back with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm, continuing from SEC Media Days in Hoover, Alabama, final day. Here's the rest of our conversation with Cole Kubelik from Jocks in Birmingham and the SEC Network. Auburn, I complete switch gears with you here. This Auburn team maybe underachieved a year ago. Defensive line is going to be really good. Is the offensive line going to be improved enough, and is the quarterback play going to be good enough that they have a big bounce back year? I don't know. None of us know because they got all five guys back. They were inconsistent a year ago, didn't play great ball a year ago, and the advantages you have there are they've all played together. And here's the problem: two problems with Auburn's offensive line last year. Number one, you had a lot of guys that looked like they were playing individual ball. They were playing for themselves. They weren't playing for the guys next to them. They weren't playing as a cohesive unit which you're never going to be a great offensive line if you do that. Number two, we can point – I can go across the starting five and I can break down Mark Carroll Harrell and Jack Driscoll and Prince Tega and Caleb Kim and Mike Horton. We can talk about all those guys and what they do well and what they what they struggle with and why they're good, why they're not. 
the reality was the problem with Auburn's offensive line last year, Richard, was the second five. Because when I played, and when most other guys played, and like you see Stinchcomb walk by, when he played, well, he never came out of the game because he was too damn good. But when you didn't play well, you came out of the game. You got benched, and the next guy played. Well, there were certain guys at certain points of the season for that Auburn offensive line last year that didn't play well, and none of them came out of the game. So you're essentially telling your team, we're okay with subpar offensive line play. We're okay with you not playing well. You can't send that message not only to your offensive line, but your entire team. And I think there's a trickle-down effect from that. So if the the second group, I think the first group will be better. How much better? Yet to be determined. But they'll be better because they've got J.B. Grimes back for the second consecutive year as their offensive line coach. He'll get them right, but the depth does concern me a lot because I don't know who your next tackle is going to be. I think you might have to bump Markel Harrell out, and now you're switching two, three positions on one offensive line if you have one guy go down. And that's – you're talking about a recipe for disaster from a continuity standpoint, that's a recipe for disaster. Last thing, more important for Mississippi State success this year, Tommy Stevens or Kylan Hill? I'm going to say Tommy Stevens. Can I say Tommy Stevens or Keaton Thompson? Like, I'm not throwing Keaton Thompson out yet. Are you? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're done. With, you think he's out. He's done. I mean, I think he's going to be a good he backup. He's either going to be a backup or, or he's going to transfer. All right. You don't bring in a I grad agree. transfer quarterback to sit on the bench. But what about Troy? Sawyer Smith just went to Kentucky, and the Kentucky kid, went. Gunnar Hoke, went to He Ohio left State. Penn State. Gunnar, Gunnar Hoke left Kentucky to go to Ohio State, and he's going to be on the bench. That's just about, This might not be applicable to Mississippi State, but I'm just going to tell you right now. This is a real thing that's happening. Quarterbacks are transferring for better backup spots. That's real. That's happening in multiple places. It, it's it's a, Sawyer Smith went from Troy to Kentucky. He ain't starting. Gunnar Hope went from Kentucky to Ohio State. He ain't beating out Justin Fields. Some of these kids are legitimately looking for better backup jobs. Like that's how crazy it is in the portal right now. Okay, I get that. But think, but th- th- but with what you're saying. think about funny. what you just said though. Left Troy to go to Kentucky in the SEC. Left Kentucky to go Troy, to go to Ohio State. This guy get- left Penn State to come to an SEC school. Now I think you're taking a shot at Mississippi State. I feel like because Mississippi State, we could make the argument is in a better spot than Penn State right now. And you can make the argument. I'm not sure that I believe it. From, from a brand standpoint, though. When was the last time Penn State was ranked number one? Okay. Are you, are you, why are you doing this to me? You know how this is going to play, right? It's if, if what you're saying holds true and it sounds – I mean, you obviously know more than I do. It would definitely be Tommy Stevens. I mean, Kylan Hill's dynamic. I think he's great. I think he's a really good back. And he I don't know that him. I know more than I do, but Brian Haydad, who's on my he show every day, is convinced. You, <laughs> you better know more than you do. Uh, we're all in trouble. Uh, we're, this just went off the rails. <laughs> um, I, all, almost like when you're doing a hit on the sideline and a referee kind of gets in the shot and you just push him out of the way. It's almost like, hey, hey, we're busy here. me right now. You should probably get me out of the way right now. Thanks for being with us. More SEC Media Days. That was Cole Kubelik. We'll probably talk to him again sometime in the future. Some strong stuff from Cube there. And I, I side with Richard more than I do Kubelik for whatever that may be worth to you. I, it, and it's not like Joe Moorhead's not going to give KT an opportunity to win that job. It's going to be a real quarterback battle. And both guys, I mean, there's no capital with either one. Uh, neither of them have really 
done anything of substance at Mississippi State so far. I know Thompson's been on the team for a while, but as far as production on the field, he, he, neither guy has done anything there yet. So it's not like they're invested in one more than the other or anything like that. So when they say, yeah, this is going to be an open competition, well, I, I buy that. I believe that. But I do agree with Richard. You don't bring in this guy from Penn State that's run your system. That when he left Penn State, when he decided to transfer, he said openly, I believe I'm an NFL quarterback. Uh, They transferred with the intention of becoming a starter. Penn State would not commit to him being the starter, and that's why he left. So if you're leaving one place because they won't commit to you as the starter to go to another to not win the job, that doesn't... Add up here. Occam's razor tells you the outcome with the least amount of explanation is the one that's probably accurate. Well, that to me is the simplest explanation. They brought Tommy Stevens in because they presume that he's going to win that starting job. Doesn't mean that he will do it. You know, something could happen in camp. But to me, I think you don't make that move unless you intend on him coming in and winning the job. It doesn't mean he will, and there are cases elsewhere. Was it Malik Zaire from Notre Dame that went to Florida, I believe, and just wasn't good enough and didn't win the job there, even though his intention was to go there and be the starter? That Those kind of things happen. But you don't bring a guy in unless you intend on, on playing him, at least... That sounds like the easiest explanation for this outcome, but we won't know for a few weeks into camp because Joe Moorhead's going to give them both equal opportunity uh, to win that quarterback job. Robert Note Grove on the C Spire text line says they could be looking at schools that have a chance to play the second team offense and blowouts. That way they get a chance to play. And as you saw with, with Alabama recently and others, I mean, if you were at Troy for so long, using the example that Cole Kubelik used, if you were at Troy for four years and you graduated and, and you started and, and all that's great and playing at Troy is is awesome. I wanted to play Division One football. I couldn't do it. I wasn't good enough. I tried. I wasn't good enough. So I'm not belittling Troy, but if you've already been a starter and you've already played there for four years and somebody gives you an opportunity to even be a backup in the SEC, to play in front of 65,000 people every Saturday instead of 15,000 people every Saturday and being one injury away, one play away from being the starter at Kentucky, that's an opportunity that I can understand that they're taking. As Richard said, this is leaving Penn State. Penn State and James Franklin. It's a little bit different. All situations are different. It's a little bit different in this case, I think. Uh, they also talked about Auburn and uh, just a, a complete turnabout here. Auburn is a fascinating team to me because even though Haydad will tell you that he doesn't think they're talented enough, I, I disagree completely with that notion. Auburn has talent all over the field. That is a team that's talented enough to win 10, 11 games, compete for an SEC West title. It, the talent is there. That talent hasn't been coached up, or at least last season it wasn't anyway. And they might be probably starting a true freshman quarterback in that opening game. At least it's an equal opportunity situation there as well. I look at Auburn the same way uh, that I look at Ole Miss, really, and, and how important game one is for the future of the coach, the future of the program, and really the season in general. 
Because if Auburn's able to take care of business with Oregon, they're rattling off a couple more walkthrough wins before they go to Texas A&M, a game that's winnable for them if they're able to take care of Justin Herbert and Oregon. Then you have Mississippi State at home, and then suddenly this Auburn team, a train starts rolling. Same thing with Ole Miss. If they're able to beat Memphis, they welcome an Arkansas team that I expect to not be very good again. Then you have Southeast Louisiana, and and then Ole Miss can start rattling off some wins. But if either one of them loses that first game, it starts a train of negative momentum that may be um, too hard to stop. But uh, we will just have to see. Under 45 days away from the start of college football season, by the way. It's coming up quick on us. NFL teams, the rookies, have already reported to training camp in multiple places. By next week, everybody will be at training camp. So football, not far away. Not far away at all. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.